0: Everyone, including me, (laughs) should maintain a kind of critical uh, stance in regard to the material that's being covered in the class.
1: Welcome to The Circled Square, and this is the podcast where we talk about teaching Buddhist studies in higher education. My name is Sarah Richardson, and I teach at the University of Toronto. And in this episode, I'm meeting with Jose Cabezon, who is the Dalai Lama professor of Buddhist studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara and who also served as the president of the American Academy of Religion in 2020. His research interests center on the history of religion, scholasticism, sexuality, dreams, and he's published many very cool things, uh, sexuality and classical South Asian Buddhism, and there's a recent study on the Monastery of Sarah in Tibet and its history. He also teaches a lot and has taught a lot for probably about three decades now. So. I'm really delighted and honored that he's here with us today. Hi, Jose.
0: Hi, Sarah. Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks so much for being here. So uh, when we were looking over your uh, website at UCSB, we saw that you teach religions of Tibet, guided readings in Tibetan Buddhist texts, Indian philosophy, the practice of Tibetan Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhist literature. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about what your teaching looks like right now, what it has looked like in recent years and how that's different from your teaching
0: earlier. Well, right now my teaching is very different from what it usually is because I'm on sabbatical. <laughs> um, but even though I'm on sabbatical, I'm continuing to meet with uh, graduate students to work on translations with them. Uh, a number of them are uh, have projects with the eighty-four thousand, which is uh, a big uh, project to translate the whole of the Tibetan canon. Mm-hmm into English. And there are several groups that are working on different texts at UCSB and I've been meeting with them. But in a typical year, our teaching load at UCSB is four courses over three quarters. Typically, I do two, two, and zero to give myself one quarter where um, I can devote more to research. Mm -hmm. So in a typical year, I will teach one large Uh, lower division general course, and that's the Religions of Tibet course that typically enrolls about 200 or so students. Wow, big. Yeah, it's big. And uh, we have TAs. Um, So that's one course typically meets twice a week. And then they have sections with the TAs Mm -hmm. for about an hour a week on top of that. Yeah. So that's one class. And then up to now, I've been teaching two uh, advanced Tibetan reading courses, Mm -hmm. which in theory, undergraduates can also sign up for. It's at a kind of middle undergraduate level. But in fact, it ends up being mostly graduate students because there are a few undergraduates who have the, the background to be able to To enter into that course, which is basically a a text reading course, a reading classic, uh, right? Reading language, reading Tibetan, right, right. And then I teach one graduate seminar, usually, typically, in a year.
1: Okay. And the graduate seminar will be what on a specific kind of new topic or of your interest, or
0: what I try to do is to cycle through a series of courses that will give graduate students kind of essential background in Tibetan Buddhism. Mm. So in one year, it may be the history uh, of Buddhism in Tibet. Um, in another year, it may be a class on historiography, the way that Tibet has been studied in the West from the time of the missionaries up to contemporary times. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes, I mean, I mean I've mean, i taught uh, that course on ethnography of religious Tibet. Um, so it kind of varies, but occasionally I do teach a topic that's of current interest to me, yeah. like monasticism, for example, Buddhist monasticism.
1: Yeah. I wanted to ask more about this big enrollment Religions of Tibet course that you do. How So how have you built a course that attracts 200 some students in a year? That's a huge course. And I, I mean, uh, for us at the University of Toronto, it would be pretty amazing to get 200 people in a room for a Religions of Tibet course. So I'm wondering, how has that grown? Did it start off big or did it grow to be big? And then how do you also get students interested? Like what what's bringing them in the door? What do you think?
0: I think that in general, students are interested in religion of any kind. Um, and I think there's still quite a bit of interest. O- over the years, it has kind of waxed and waned, but I think there is kind of persistent amount of interest in Buddhism. Mm. We're helped in the enrollment in this case because it fulfills a general education requirement. Mm-hmm. So students can enroll for that class and fulfill their I I think I, I can't remember exactly what the gen ed is called, but it's something like cultures of the world requirement that they have to take at least one class in. Right. But a lot of them really kind of have prior interest in Buddhism and they want to learn more about Buddhism.
1: Right, right.
0: And and maybe over time the class has also developed a bit of a reputation for being a kind of interesting yeah.
1: class. Yeah. And what do you think so, why why what are the interesting things do you think for students about it? How do you structure it or how do you make that material come alive for them?
0: The first thing I do, and this is actually an interesting question in uh, in Buddhist pedagogy, if we want to call it that, or the pedagogy of Buddhism is how to situate yourself at the beginning of a class. Mm. Um, in my case, I'm a Buddhist and I have a long background as a Buddhist. Many of my colleagues have said that they'd like to keep students guessing about their own religious background and that this serves a good pedagogical function in the class. It kind of keeps students asking questions and wondering what the professor's relationship to the material is. I, from the very beginning, have taken a different tack and I've kind of come clean at the beginning about what my background is. The fact that I was a Buddhist monk for 10 years and I show them pictures of myself and my PowerPoint presentations of me as a monk and, um, Translating for the Dalai Lama and so forth. And I think this kind of piques their interest in another way, Mm -hmm. whether to disclose or uh, for pedagogical purposes to um, not to disclose. I think those are kind of interesting questions. Um, I mean, in course evaluation, students often say, you know, I really appreciate the fact that you told us a bit about yourself at the beginning of the course Um, The downside to this is that I think students sometimes assume that because of your background that you're somehow authoritative and that your opinions kind of perhaps weigh more than others' opinions. Uh, For example, than the textbook or than their own opinion about the material. So one has to kind of battle against that while you know, acknowledging the fact that I have this long uh, relationship with Buddhism, not only academic relationship, but personal relationship, that in fact, everyone, including me, (laughs) should maintain a kind of critical uh, stance in regard to the material that's being covered in the class.
1: Mm -hmm. And then why did you call it Religions of Tibet instead of Tibetan Buddhism? Or like, why is it called, given that title as a
0: course? Um, because I cover two minority religions in Tibet, mm-hmm. uh, I cover Pen, which is, um, if we want to call it that, the pre-Buddhist religion of Tibet, indigenous religion. And I cover Tibetan Islam. I do one class on Tibetan Islam, which again is probably ninety-nine percent of Tibet is Buddhist, but uh, or maybe ninety-five percent. But Pen and Islam are definite parts of the religious landscape in Tibet, and. I've had an interest in both, but especially in Tibetan Islam. Mm. Uh, so I, I like to cover that yeah. uh, in at least one, one class.
1: Great. And then is the is the class, I'm just curious, is it structured historically, like a story of progress marching forward from the 7th century to now? Or is it like thematic? How do you organize the weeks of yeah, the course? Yeah, that's a good of question. Course?
0: I do a section on history. I begin by surveying Buddhism in India because a lot of the students come into the class and they don't have any notion at all of what Buddhism is or how Buddhism came from India to Tibet. So I do a kind of overview of Buddhism in India very briefly and give an intro to basic Buddhist doctrines like the Four Noble Truths, the Three Trainings, um, I tell them a bit about the life of the Buddha, and I bring it up to the time that Buddhism entered Tibet. And then I have a section on the history of Buddhism in, in Tibet. And then so, and then the history part ends, and we, we spend four weeks looking at uh, four major schools of Tibetan Buddhism, plus Pan, plus Islam. We look at you know, the Nyingma school and the Kargyu school. So, for example, when we're studying the Kargyu, they read the biography of Milarepa uh, in the class. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I spend several weeks on one doctrinal meditative tradition. In this case, I focus on the Tibetan Lamrim, the stages of the path. And they read a text, uh, a translation, and we discuss that for. Two or three weeks, and then I look at one institution, and the institution that I look at because of my own familiarity with it is Sarah monastery. so that's kind of the way that I structure the course
1: and when you do something like Lamrim and you read about Lamrim meditation, do you invite them to, do you do meditation with them or ask them to do that as part of a component of the course, or is that something you don't do with them?
0: in that class uh, not often. I have, for example, when it, mostly at the beginning of the class, when I'm talking about um, the tri-shiksha, the three trainings and the training in samadhi, I explain what mental concentration is. And I invite them for a minute or so to count their breaths in the class to see how long they can maintain concentration for. Mm-hmm. But that, I don't do very much of that in the class. Mm-hmm. And in Canada, you probably don't have this concern. But, in the states, the separation of church and state should be maintained, and the question is where exactly does that does that get breached? I mean, it's an interesting question. I have a colleague who retired recently, but she works in the area of religion and cognitive science, mm-hmm. and we talked about this once about um, whether or not it was legally kosher to teach meditation mm. in a public university. Mm. Her response to me, I thought was very interesting. She said, you know, athletes are trained and they're told to do things. Uh, so why is this any different?
1: I mean, it could make a difference certainly in some, some people's perspectives, but that doesn't make their perspective necessarily the authoritative one either, right? Um, right. I mean, meditation can be seen as religion or can be seen as mental training right? Like, you know, cultivating the tools of your mind, which isn't so different than what we're supposed to do when we read and write as well, arguably.
0: Yeah. I mean, meditation has been secularized yeah. now to the point where it could probably be presented in this way. right? But when it's being uh, taught in a class on Buddhism, then presumably what what you're doing is teaching the specific Buddhist form of meditation within the context of of the religion.
1: Yeah. So So when you teach this course um, to this wonderful Uh, group of undergraduates, introducing them to the religions of Tibet across these 16 weeks, what is the big takeaway? What do you want them to come away from the course knowing or having their minds changed about something? Do you think you're trying to, like, are you trying to unpack some kinds of expectations or you know assumptions that they've come to the class with or and what is the big takeaway that you want them to have at the end?
0: Yeah it's, it's actually not 16 weeks it's 10, 10 weeks because weeks. we're on the quarter oh, okay. system so okay. it, so every, everything is compressed okay. as a result. Um,
1: 10 weeks is fast that's a lot to do. In 10 weeks. weeks is
0: fast yeah. yeah it is it is you know having taught the class for a long time Uh, I've kept it kind of lean and mean, and I I know what works and what doesn't work. And, you know, this is one of the advantages of, of teaching a class over and over again. You can fine tune it, um, to make it go well, even in a short period of time. Like what do I want them to come out of the class with? You know, I, I don't think it's any one thing or even any combination of things, um, I think different students do, as a matter of fact, come out of the class with different things. Among those is um, simply an understanding that there are people in the world who think very differently than they think, who believe that the world is a very different place from what they think the world is. Maybe this is a goal, uh, to have them see the world through a different lens than they're normally used to i i think in the case of tibet it it is in part to kind of break stereotypes i mean the glamorization or the fetishization of tibet as a kind of magical mystical place where there are flying llamas and things like that so a lot of scholarship over the past 30 years has tackled this this issue and has shown the origins of this and, um, and the problems with this, I find that in the undergraduate classroom, students don't even have enough knowledge of Tibet to be able to fetishize it in this way. So part of my task and part of the goal, I think, is simply to introduce them to a different part of the world that they wouldn't otherwise come into contact with, you know, for them to realize that there are people who think very differently than they think, but also to introduce them to some of the great ideas of the religious world, in this case, the Buddhist world. And I think that they appreciate all of those things. They tend to not appreciate the historical part as much <laughs> as, as the ideas part. Um. I, I try to make the case that the two things kind of go hand in hand, that you can't really understand the ideas unless you understand the history and vice versa. But most undergraduates, I think, are interested really more in the ideas than they are in the um, in the history.
1: Yeah. And then how much does uh, modern politics come into the class? Does it, I mean, it's it's a challenge we all face how to talk about an area like Tibet where there's, you know, ongoing... Cultural genocide, right going on in China's Tibet. So how but how openly do you feel there's space to talk about that with your students? Is it the right space in a, in a you know undergraduate classroom? How do you do deal with that?
0: In part, that comes up naturally um, in the presentation of the kind of historical sketch of of Tibet and Tibetan Buddhism. We have fairly large population of foreign students, uh, and especially from China. I, I don't know what the actual numbers is are, are but it's something like twenty percent of the entire undergraduate student body. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe Chinese students. Mm-hmm. So I, I usually have a fair number of Chinese students in the class. Mm-hmm. I mean, simply to to be able to see the history of Tibet presented you know, at least until a certain period of time, but more or less independent of Chinese history, that it isn't the history of a province of China, that Tibet kind of had its own history up until the present, that in itself is kind of eye-opening for many students. And when we get to the modern period, I try to present, you know, my view and the view of the, I I use John Power's uh, textbooks, the I think it's called Introduction to Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and the view of the textbook, uh, which is that, you know, I mean, Tibet is a kind of colonized country, and that Tibetan people would like to be able to exercise certain freedoms like like religious freedom, and that this is thwarted by the policies of the Chinese government. Um, Linguistic
1: freedom, which is now at stake.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The ability to kind of preserve and teach their own language.
1: Yeah.
0: I tell students to to read the Chinese point of view and, um, you know, throughout the class, especially in the context of teaching about the monastery, I talk about the feudal system that existed in Tibet uh, and the fact that uh, serfs were exploited. By landowners, by nobles and aristocrats and the government, and um, so I try to present a kind of balanced picture and allow students to kind of make their own decision, mm-hmm. but I, again I, I make it clear what my own position is,
1: yeah, and then do you build your course like what kind of assignments are you giving them to 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 generate? they're uh learning in this course is it like tests or papers or do they do other kinds of things what are they making for you
0: it's a it's a combination of things so um very early in the course um i have them uh watch what is it what is it called it may it may just be called the buddha it's a movie it lasts about an hour i think it was made with funding from the ho foundation Mm. Um, they have they have to write a short paper on that. There are some essays that they have to write in the course, and then there are tests. Because of the course is so large, there's both a, a so-called objective section to the test, you know, kind of multiple choice type of thing. But then they also have essays, and then the the graduate students have a great deal of freedom what they do in their section. So they oftentimes give them their own assignments. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so, and you also do a lot of teaching of graduate students. So you're, I think at this point you're referring to graduate students as your TAs in this course who can exercise some freedom and in, in creating different kinds of assignments, which is great. But can we now pivot a bit to talking about like, what is the big difference for you between like how you conceptualize of the kinds of teaching you need to do for an undergraduate classroom versus what's different about training and working with graduate students?
0: I mean, in this undergraduate class and others that are kind of more specialized that I've taught in the past, you know, I can't assume that they they really know anything at all about Tibet or about Buddhism. So I always have to start from the very beginning. So even if it's supposedly an upper division class, you at the very least have to kind of rehearse, you know, what Buddhism is, how Buddhism started, what the basic doctrines of Buddhism are before then you get into the actual subject matter of the Mm. course. In the graduate classroom, you obviously don't have to do that. You have students who are already specializing in Buddhism or taking the class. Um, The goal in the undergraduate course, as I said, is to kind of expose them to a a culture that's very different from their own and to have them think about, you know, what it means that there are people in the world who think in this very different way. In the graduate classroom, it's really to prepare them to be experts in Buddhism, I mean, we're fortunate at UCSB to have four professors, four Buddhologists uh, who each specialize in a different area of the world. Mm -hmm. You know, we have somebody who specializes in Japan, in China. I do Tibet. My colleague, Vesna Wallace, does both India and Mongolia. So students can kind of gain breadth uh, in regard to the Buddhist tradition by taking different courses from the four of us. Um, but that what that means also is that each of us has the luxury to be able to uh, focus on our own specialization. In my case, my goal is to kind of give them a broad background in doctrines, major doctrines and, and schools of Tibetan Buddhism, the history of the development of Buddhism, uh, a little bit on the ethnography, and uh, as I mentioned before, the kind of Second-order historiography of how Tibet has been studied yeah. over time. Yeah, that 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 I think is kind of the minimal background, the minimum background that's necessary to give students the wherewithal to be able to call themselves specialists in Tibet, which many of them will do at the end of receiving a PhD here, and also to prepare them to teach in in these fields. So that's kind of the the goal of, of teaching um, graduate seminars. And now the language classes is a, is a kind of third component to my teaching that in many ways, it's my favorite form of teaching because I like reading texts and I like reading texts with the graduate students. Apart from teaching them Tibetan and the nuances of reading classical Tibetan, it's also an opportunity to to have them think critically about text, to, to teach them to ask questions about what the text is saying.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the kinds of questions that are possible. And how have your students changed over the years? Are, th- like, the kinds of conversations you're having around the questions you can bring to a text different than what they were 20 years ago?
0: Yeah, I... I thought you were asking, going to ask me about undergraduates and undergraduates have also changed substantially. Right, right. Well,
1: we can talk about both. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I want to know both. I mean, undergraduates have changed insofar as we have much, we have fewer majors than we used to. Uh, Maybe about a third Uh, of the majors that we used to have. I think when I first arrived here, religious studies had something like 200 majors, and now we have maybe 60 or 70. Um, And this is true across every discipline in the humanities. It's not just religious studies. Mm -hmm. And in part, I think that's because students are thinking and they're being pushed by parents to think more pragmatically. And they tend to think that humanities degrees, including degrees in religious studies, aren't useful for future careers. So as a result, they tend to major in something else, but they still love the the study of religion and they still love the study of Buddhism. And so whenever they get a chance, they take electives or they try to fulfill requirements by taking classes in in religious studies. Um, But there is a kind of more, I think, pragmatic, professionalized mindset among undergraduates now than there was, say, twenty years ago when I first arrived at UCSB. Uh, at the graduate level, maybe there's more concern about professional issues, like kind of preparing for the professor. I mean, when I was a, when I was a graduate student, we basically took classes almost in a kind of haphazard way. I think if I saw a syllabus at all <laughs> throughout my entire graduate training, I don't really remember it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was mostly the professor would come in and say, okay, now we're going to read this book uh, or now we're going to study this text. Yeah. And it was very disorganized, but, but also uh, kind of refreshing. <laughs>
1: um,
0: Whereas now not only is everything kind of laid out very carefully ahead of time. So everyone knows what they're doing throughout the quarter through the syllabus, but also on top of that, graduate students expect a certain amount of uh, professional training, you know, yeah, um, yeah. how, how, to, how, how, and where to publish, uh, how to apply for jobs, how to interview, um, Whereas in my generation, there was really none of that. <laughs> so I think there is a kind of expectation on the part of graduate students to receive a kind of professional formation yeah. uh, that didn't used to exist in the past. So that's one of the big differences, I think. Yeah.
1: Though the irony being that, I mean, there's so many fewer jobs compared to um, the number of PhD graduates, really, right? So- yeah. I don't,
0: I don't. I don't know that that's the case. Uh, I mean, I, I think there are more graduates now for sure, but the jo- jobs, number of jobs, have always been fewer. Mm. But but it's also been the case that, I mean, over the past several decades, the number of jobs in Buddhist studies has increased mm. because small religious studies departments have realized that, um, that it kind of makes sense to to have a diverse department and and oftentimes to have somebody teaching Buddhism as one of the religions that are covered.
1: Sure. Uh, yeah.
0: And, you know, in the 1970s, 80s, um, that wasn't always the case. You know, you could have a religious studies department that consisted just of, you know, basically Old and New Testament. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so with that greater diversification has come opportunities also for jobs. Yeah. Maybe, maybe there's there are fewer jobs per per Student who is graduating, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, because we haven't, you know, uh, we're producing more PhDs now than we have in the past. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Yeah. So, in preparation for this, we read your uh, 2020 AAR presidential address, the study of Buddhism and the AAR, which was a lovely scientific kind of analysis of like, I I loved it. You were using all these data points of, you know, where people were trained, where they were placed, where they published. Um, It was like a statistical analysis of watching a field grow and change, which I thought was really uh, lovely. And in it, you're sort of tracing these shifts, like these, the the paradigm shifts of where Buddhist studies happened, like how it happened, where it happened, that it, you know, that kind of big story being a, a shift from area studies into religious studies and that that being kind of one of the hallmarks then of what's happened in kind of North American Buddhist studies that's given it the flavor that it has this and the specific interests that it has. And so I wonder, um, as you've had time sort of to reflect on this further, do you see this continuing? Do you think religious studies departments are the home of, are going to be like, are they going to continue to be the the right or the, I don't know if it's right or wrong, but the appropriate home of where Buddhism is going to be taught in higher education? Or uh, I, 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 I'm asking because, I mean, here in Toronto we have places um, in our own university where, I mean, we have, we have Buddhist studies being taught in, Religion, but we also have um, these, like Buddhism, psychology, and mental health programs that are d- very different. Actually, in what the in in their goals, right? The students who come to those programs have very different um, goals. They're becoming social workers, or you know, therapists, or other kinds of things. Um, but Buddhism is in that title too. So we're almost watching these kind of different sort of silos of other places where. Buddhism is is entering the university, at least in our own case. And so I'm wondering if you feel that Buddhist studies in religious studies is going to be the thing that continues for the next few decades, or if we're going to, if you can imagine kind of other shapes to that.
0: I mean, Buddhist studies is a fairly conservative field. It doesn't change easily, even with the shifts that I suggested took place in that article um, you know, kind of more area studies-based model to uh, religious studies model that didn't happen easily and it didn't happen all at once. It took decades to happen. And even after it happened, I think, you know, Buddhist studies in the old mode uh, that is as kind of focused on texts and uh, and focused on doctrines, is still kind of the core of the discipline in many ways. But one of the things that I argue in that essay is that um, religious studies has served to to kind of open up Buddhologists' uh, worldview. And by allowing conversations with other subfields within religion, it has acted to make Buddhologists ask, and answer a series of questions that they probably wouldn't have outside of the context of those broader conversations. And the fact that you know scholars of Buddhism are in fact availing themselves of, of those opportunities seems clear from that kind of statistical data that I presented. If if you look at the number of papers in Buddhism, I can't remember what the exact number was. Um, what what percentage of the papers on Buddhism? are presented outside of Buddhism-related sections of the AAR. (laughs) I even found one paper, Buddhism paper, being presented in a Bible section. Mm -hmm. Um, The diversity of the venues in the AAR where Buddhologists present their work is, is pretty amazing. And it's only increased over time. And I think that that will continue to be the case.
1: Yeah. You've talked a lot about the need for Buddhist studies to become a more inclusive field. So what does inclusivity mean? Like, what does this vision of inclusivity look like?
0: I mean, having different voices, people with different perspectives, um, to be able to uh, to ask their own sets of questions from their own vantage point. I mean, for example, um, I don't think that I would have been interested in issues of sexuality were not for the fact that I'm a sexual minority, right? That I'm uh, a gay man who's, you know, wanted to find out what Buddhism has to say about different forms of sexuality. So the fact that you have, you know, different people with different concerns uh, asking different types of questions obviously enriches the fields. Mm-hmm. And I think the, th- the same thing applies to to race and ethnicity and, and social class. You know, it's only now really that we're beginning to think about. So the more diversity we have, the different sets of questions that arise, and this is obviously uh, beneficial to the discipline.
1: Yeah. And what directions in the field that you see growing around you are most exciting to you? What do you think kind of holds the most hope for the future for um, positive growth?
0: I don't know, um, because I don't know that I really think about growth. I I tend to think about what will make, what makes for interesting conversations rather than what's going to make the, the field or the mm-hmm. discipline grow. I think people of my generation, in fact, I think old Buddhologists in general um uh, don't think very much, at least I don't think very much about, you know, what the future will bring. I think more about trying to wrap up projects that I started <laughs> a long time ago right. and, and, and tried to finish. So I, I really don't sure. uh, ha- have these kind of broad visions right, right. about yeah. what the future should be like. Right.
1: No. And it doesn't have to be one thing. so what are the what are the favorite projects you want to wrap up what's the what's the heart project that you want to still see? I mean, the book on Sarah Monastery came out, which looks like a lot of work and the website um, that also has a lot of you know a lot of work has gone into it. so what's what's still on your plate if you could do it all or if you could just do some what would you, what's your what's closest to your heart now?
0: You know, there was a time when I thought of um, writing a very interdisciplinary book on comparison, on the process of comparison. Um, I mean, looking at the way in which different comparative disciplines use comparison, you know, the discipline of comparative literature, of comparative politics, of comparative religions, and, and then also to look at the way that Cognitive scientists were viewing the act of comparison. I don't know that I'll ever get to that book. Um, there's a section of my library that contains all of the <laughs> things that I had read at one point, um, but but maybe who knows? Yeah. Um, and then there are a number of other things that I'd, I'd like to do a book on dreams, on on the interpretation of dreams and the the function of dreams and the interpretation of dreams in... Oh, that. indo tibetan Buddhism.
1: Yeah, that'd be wonderful. I guess just to to finish up here, um, is there anything that you think kind of students who are newly interested in pursuing Buddhist studies in a more sustained way, you know, undergrads who are thinking about going to grad school, what's the thing you would want them to know? Or what's a piece of advice you could give them?
0: Usually when uh, students like that contact me about maybe applying to UCSB's graduate program, um, I usually try and have at least a telephone or nowadays a Zoom conversation with them um, to try and lay out a kind of realistic vision of what what it means, what their goals are, uh, why they want to have an advanced degree and what it, what it will mean for them to, to do a PhD. Some students don't un- understand the, the degree to which language study is kind of central uh, to the field. Um, and even though there are subfields of Buddhism where that is less important, I think it's still pretty essential. I mean, for example, the study of Buddhism in America in our institution is done under American religions and is not done under Buddhist studies. And I think that that bespeaks uh, uh, something about the, the nature of Buddhist studies, which is that we're still a kind of language based uh, field,
1: mm-hmm. right? So you tell them to take a pause and go get those languages going. Yeah,
0: yeah. and to, and to you know whether or not that this is what they had in mind, and whether they're willing to kind of make the commitment to, to doing that over. A period of time,
1: yeah, and then since it's come up a few times, and I want to make sure like our podcast listeners have the opportunity to hear it from you, can you tell us kind of the in a nutshell the the story of your life where you how you got to be where you are? Like how did a Latino gay man come up to be the uh, the Dalai Lama professor of Buddhist studies? where's the, what's the story there?
0: Uh, I was born in Cuba. My parents came to the United States when I was very young, when I was four years old, but I spoke Spanish at home. So Spanish is really my first language. And I still, you know, speak Spanish at home, um, raised in Boston, um, finished high school early and then, uh, was really at that point interested in science. So I went to Caltech to study physics. I was there for three years. And then in my, uh, junior year started reading about Buddhism. A friend on my birthday uh, told me that I could pick out any book from the Caltech bookstore um, as my birthday present and I chose a book on Buddhism. John Blofeld's Tantric Mysticism of Tibet. There weren't that many books (laughs) on Buddhism back then. Uh, And that kind of got me hooked. Uh, And then I started reading more and then I, I convinced the school to allow me to spend my last year studying Buddhism. So although I have a degree from Caltech, which is a technical scientific school, my degree is actually three years of science and one year of Buddhism. I I spent uh, one semester at the University of Wisconsin and one semester in India at the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives. And at that point, I was ordained, and then I came back to do graduate work at the University of Wisconsin, uh, where I studied under Geshe Sopa for... Uh, about three years and then went to Sarah Monastery in India and lived in the monastery and studied a bit of the traditional curriculum while I was also writing my dissertation. And then when I got back, I um, I wasn't really thinking. Uh, and when I say that, you know, my generation, I don't think that we thought very pragmatically. We kind of just... You know, I mean, this in my case is certainly true. I studied, I was in a graduate program because it allowed me to study Buddhism, and I really wasn't thinking about what my next step is going to be. But um, when I did finish, thanks to Roger Jackson, actually, um, he asked me what I was going to do, and I said that I had no idea. He said that there was a one-year position that was open at Carleton College in, in Northfield, Minnesota. So I applied for it and I got that. And then that kind of started my teaching career.
1: Uh-huh.
0: I taught for a year at Carleton and uh, a year at Trinity College in Hartford, a year at Ohio State. Mm. And, then, and then I taught in Denver at the Isle of School of Theology for 12 years.
1: Oh, wow.
0: Um, yeah, it was a, quite a long stint there. It was a, really a wonderful uh, time in my life because it allowed me to uh engage in conversations with uh, theologians, mostly theologians uh, who in many ways uh, broaden my outlook and my and my views even in regard to the Buddhist material that I was studying. so uh, after that, after being there for twelve years then I went, I got this, the chair the Dalai Lama chair at UC Santa Barbara and I've been here for now twenty. 20 years. I think this is my 20th year.
1: Wow. Wow. I mean, you said at the very outset of this interview that you're very open with your students about your history and about your monastic training and your Buddhist positionality. Uh, But was that difficult to navigate kind of the difference between academic spaces and academic discourse of, you know, what's expected from the professor versus, um, you know, you took ordination in those years too. So was that, was there tension there for you or was it... Straightforward.
0: <laughs> um, I, there probably was some tension at the beginning. the The whole idea of of um, approaching religion, approaching Buddhism, objectively, wasn't, or or scientifically, or maintaining critical distance from Buddhism as an object of study, really wasn't as strong as it is today. I mean, today. People talk about the insider-outsider question and whether or not you know insiders are kind of compromised, or whether an insider perspective gives you uh, greater sympathy for the and therefore understanding for the religion. These questions weren't really being asked when I when I first started. And therefore, maybe we we just kind of approached our, you know, the study of Buddhism naively in many ways. But at the same time. I think that there were many different types of voices. Uh, I mean, my department, for example, at the University of Wisconsin, when I was a graduate student, there were historians, uh, ethnographers, there was Gishizopa, who's a Tibetan Lama, who taught basically doctrinal uh, texts. You know, and Steve Beyer was there for quite a while. He had kind of a more multidisciplinary point of view.
1: I, my ears peaked also when you said you, so you had one year at Ohio state. I went to Ohio state for my master's and it's, oh, you did? yeah. And it's right now very close, you know, close to my mind. Cause I don't know if you heard, but my Jen, John Huntington just passed away.
0: I did hear that. Like, yeah. Raston it's state. very sad. Yeah. yeah. I, I knew John, yeah. uh, uh, and Susan yeah. and my, my time there was, uh, was really great. It was a great, place to be um th- there was actually no religious studies program it was religion was taught in a place called the center for comparative studies mm. and i don't know whether that's changed or not
1: right but yeah
0: it was a very interesting
1: time yeah i mean when i was there it was just art history with both of them so
0: we were oh i see we were
1: all we were all their art history, their buddhist art history babies but i see but yeah So um, thank you so much for your time today, Jose. Thank you so much for talking with us about your teaching.
0: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.